Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by MarketingForAttorneys.com, helping attorneys and law firms clarify and upgrade their marketing and messaging to help firms grow while reducing reliance on pay-per-click advertising. Visit MarketingForAttorneys.com to book your free consultation today. My guest today is Amy Mauser. Amy has spent almost two decades building and leading fundraising teams within nonprofits after her brief but very educational career in law. Her experiences included work on behalf of faith-based, arts, healthcare, higher education, and community impact missions. Whether using her legal experience to explore the technical benefits of a planned giving vehicle or her interpersonal skills to explain the financial impact of a one-time major gift, she loves connecting with individual philanthropists to share their joy in making a difference. Amy is a critical thinker who brings a unique perspective to every place she goes. She can be counted on to quickly understand a fundraising program's overall view or spend time reviewing the data. With an expertise in building programs from the ground up, she will always ask the right questions to get everyone involved in discovering the best solutions. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I have to say that bio sounds great. I like that person. I hope I can meet those standards. I'm sure that you will. So, Amy, I'd love to just start back at the beginning a little bit. Like, how did you first decide to go to law school? Actually, that's a very good question because it is my law school experience, I think, that put me here. So I graduated from college and went to work um, in healthcare. I thought I wanted to be a hospital administrator. So I did some work on an NIH grant and was working at a big hospital in New York doing administration that it turns out later on was development. But I went to law school because I didn't think I wanted to grow up to be my boss. And I failed to find a mentor or failed to look for a mentor really, who could show me what other opportunities they, there were. And so there I was, a smart, hardworking person. And I thought, I guess I'm supposed to go to law school now. So after five years of work experience, I took myself to law school. And it circles around because I think now I work extra hard to make sure that fundraisers both understand the big picture, but also are able to find a mentor and ask the questions that help them find out what it is they are very best at. 
It's always interesting, right? Like I think for, um, I identify as a Xennial, which I guess now we're called geriatric millennials. I was born 83, but I know growing up, it was always a thing of, oh, if you're like a smart driven person and, and you're not really sure what to do, go to law school. <laughs> and, and it's, oh, that's a really, really expensive way to experiment and find your way in something. But I always love to talk to other people like myself who got a law degree and then went in a totally different direction. But maybe, obviously, I think just the actual education itself, uh, even studying for the LSAT has been proven to change the way your brain works a bit. And so I think there's, you know, still a lot of value uh, in the, the frame of mind. It really puts you in regardless of what you end up doing. I would agree. And it also, for me in fundraising, particularly in planned giving work, it means that I can talk lawyer. And so when I'm doing business on a planned gift and I'm working with donors, trusted advisors, I, I can talk the talk and that has helped me greatly. Oh, I totally agree. It definitely gives you that gravitas. You know exactly as intimidated by any attorneys you have to deal with or anything like that. And yeah, you can always be speaking their language. So what was your experience like as a practicing attorney? I worked in a big New York City firm in the late 90s. So my experience was work very hard, work very long hours, and there was yelling in the halls. Um, there were, there was not a focus on teaching you how to do things. You just had to do it. And it was before we had PCs on our desks. So there was a lot of actual editing with a pen. Wow, that's that's pretty intense. <laughs> and I'm I'm not that old, but but yes. Wow. Did you have an idea of going into the nonprofit world when you started in big law, or is it just it wound you up there after a while? I was in nonprofit before I went to big law. So really I consider my nonprofit days to be a return to my original path, but with more education behind me. When after I I was practicing law. My family moved to Florida. I had the opportunity to pick up and move. And I was in what I call the mom years. And, and I had a chance to really sit back at that point and think about what I wanted to do. And what I decided was that what I wanted to do was look at numbers and talk to people. And it turns out that what I'm good at is talking to people about the numbers. And so that brought me back to development. I can't say that when I was in big law, I thought I would go back to development. But afterwards, it all made perfect sense. Yeah, it seems like a yeah, natural fit for fundraising and development work, given your skill sets and, and given the different experiences you've had. So what have you found to be the most challenging things about fundraising in the nonprofit world? The most challenging thing is, tell, is helping people understand that what you want to do is share the story of the mission and that being a fundraiser is not as simple as asking for money, that there are other nuances in it, that really being a philanthropist or being a donor is about investing in a mission that's important to you. And that once, once you realize that, it's, you're working together with the fundraiser. 
And so I look for donors who want to be partners, both with me and with the organization, to take their interest in the work, whatever the work is, to the next level. And I think from the outside, that's not what fundraising looks like. Fundraising looks like asking for money, which is a very small piece of it. Oh, definitely. So it seems like there's almost implicitly a hole there in terms of I'm sure you've experienced like tons of different, whether it's executive directors of nonprofits or people who founded nonprofits on their own that are making a lot of those mistakes. So there's probably a need for sort of fundraising consultation and things like that. There's a huge need for fundraising consultation, both with the executive directors and their boards who often don't know what fundraising is. They just know that they need money and they don't want to write the checks. But also, more importantly, training of the fundraising staff. Because without training the fundraising staff, you get on a very rapid cycle of people coming in uh, because they're passionate about a mission. And when they don't learn how to be a fundraiser, how to talk about the mission and how to ask people to partner with them, they very quickly leave. And there are multiple studies that show that fundraisers, particularly in large nonprofits, but really it happens all over, their tenure is under a year and a half. And wow. the, the impact of that on those individuals, but also on the organizations and their ability to raise money and, and sustain their work is is remarkable. We know how much it costs to hire a person and to train a person once, but imagine if you're doing it every year. Oh yeah. Costs have got to be huge and that turnover and you're not building up any institutional knowledge. And then especially for a smaller organization, it's you're essentially starting from square one almost every year, it would seem. All the time. I, I like to think that the purpose of a fundraiser's job is to say please and to say thank you. And the thank you is more fun and often harder. And when this turnover happens, there's no one left to say thank you. And so what you get is a cycle of people asking please over and over again to the names on the list that they're handed when they walk in the door. And then by the time it's time to say thank you, it's time to start the, the stewardship cycle that hopefully will lead to a second a second or third investment in the mission, there's new staff on board. And so you're starting in the middle or you're starting at the beginning, but never getting to the end over and over again. So it seems like something almost ripe for a lot of disruption. I encountered, a, I'm going to forget the name of it, but I encountered a, a group the other day that is essentially like the Uber for advisory boards. So for connecting people that want to be on advisory boards with companies that don't have one, but definitely need one. And so they make the digital marketplace for it. And what it sounds like here is there's a real need to connect fundraising talent with nonprofits, but then actually have the educational component where you can reduce turnover. Because it sounds like what you're saying is this is endemic to the entire industry, large and small, and small ones certainly hit a lot worse. But it seems like a unique business opportunity in there, maybe with someone like your expertise or others in similar positions, they can come in and say, hey, actually, it, this isn't just about asking for money. There's a whole ecosystem that you have to understand. There's all these different political dynamics or lobbying skills or other interpersonal skills you need to develop in order to 
make this something that can be ongoing, that you can have a successful career where you don't just bounce from organization to organization, because that's not really helping anyone, is it? No, it's not helping anyone. It doesn't help the fundraisers either, because they leave organizations because they often, because they don't feel like they know how to succeed, because they haven't been taught how to succeed. And so they leave feeling feeling demoted. But that training niche and that that disruption is actually what my um, colleague Sharon Kitroser and I are doing with Team Cat and Mouse, which is training fundraisers so that they can stay in their jobs. What we saw, we worked together at a nonprofit organization and our unique partnership of my strategy and her tactics, I say that very broadly, we both do a lot of everything, but we were able to build a team that was trained and ready to go to do the sales part of fundraising, to do the strategic part of fundraising, and then to be there to celebrate their successes. And we know that it's successful because those fundraisers that worked with us stayed and saw their success and now have moved on. They've left the organization, but they've all left into chief development officer roles. And so they have all taken their skills to the next level, which is understandable that they would want to, and they're bringing that success to other organizations in the community. And so when we looked and we were able to say all of those people that that worked with us and that we trained and mentored, they are seeing success. And yet there are so many organizations and the statistics still read that success is not happening everywhere. And it was that need that prompted us to form our own consultant. What kind of advice would you give to an executive director or perhaps someone who's looking to start their own nonprofit in terms of getting their head around fundraising and making sure that they can be successful in the long term? I think understanding, uh, let me talk about the executive director of an existing nonprofit first. Understanding that there are many channels of fundraising, that there are different ways to go about raising the money in each of them, whether it's corporate fundraising, individual work, grants from foundations, establishing a planned giving program. There are all those channels and you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So my primary advice would be to build a nimble team that will be able to fundraise for you in all of those channels. We saw organizations in the past year whose revenue was almost entirely dependent on special events or galas or walks, and they were devastated because those there was not a market for people attending those events, and they had to jump very quickly to make new plans. So my primary advice was be nimble and be tenacious. As to starting a new nonprofit, I'm a little biased there. My my position will always start with, are you sure no one else is doing it? Because every small nonprofit that's out there could use a strong partner and a strong investor and more brain power and more care for their mission. And I, I don't know that starting your own actual organization is always the answer. So that would be my first piece of advice. And then 
I think, build impact and learn to tell the story. Oh, yeah, the story is so important. And I'd imagine like what you're talking about earlier in terms of whether or not people even know or understand the mission, because really great marketing is all about memorization. And we understand that implicitly with things like a jingle, if you get a nice earworm in there, something that people never forget. The guy who sold carpet 30 years ago when you were a kid or something, you could still remember his phone number or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it gets lost in the sort of mainstream and like print marketing and stuff. And so you have like, you know, certain memorable campaigns, whether it's like Got Milk or Absolute Vodka or something like that. But I think definitely in the nonprofit world, especially there's a real lack of that kind of like memorization that gets built in for most companies. But if you can do that, if you can go to say you have a hundred person nonprofit and you can go to anyone, wake them up in the middle of the night and be like, hey, what's the mission of your nonprofit? What do you do? And if they're all saying the same thing and are all on the, on the same sheet of music, then that, that's usually a place that's going to be more successful uh, than one where people are just meandering through. We like to help in this group and that group. And we, it's really detached. And people take for granted that stuff is incredibly important because it's really what keeps people on the same page. Absolutely. And I think in addition to being able to tell what the mission of the organization is, Everyone who's engaged with the organization, so staff and volunteers, lay leadership or the board, they should be able to have a story at the tip of their tongue that they could tell that shares the impact of the organization. What's, okay. what's not only what are the words on the page that say your mission, but what's the work that you've actually seen and touched? What's the impact that you have felt? What's the time? that the important work the organization is doing made you cry or made you laugh or those stories are what will move the mission forward. And yeah, that's why people sign checks and you got to have that emotional connection. And there's really probably no more powerful way to do that than story, uh, especially when it comes to marketing. Yes. What, what kind of advice would you give to young people, or maybe of any age, but especially like young people coming out of college or maybe grad school or something, and they're looking to get into the nonprofit world, they've got that save the world mentality, and they want to, they want to be in nonprofits, what should they be wary of? What should they know before they jump headfirst into that world? It is not easier to work in a nonprofit than it is to work at a corporate job. You do not work less hard. And in fact, often you work harder, but for less money. So I think that's a bias. Sometimes people think the work is fun and everyone wears matching t-shirts and therefore it must not be so, you must not work as hard. I mean, it's a different kind of work. The work that I do now is certainly a different kind of work than big law, but it's not easier. The second thing I would say to anyone looking to do fund development work is it's a lot like sales. There are days when you will feel that it is a lot like sales. And that's not a bad thing, but I think that comes as a surprise to new development professionals. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And especially, I would imagine that a lot of those people might be even more reticent to do anything that sort of feels salesy or something, but seems like they would actually have a lot of benefit to going into taking a sales job or something early on, because if you can succeed in the mainstream sales job, then going into a nonprofit, at least you have the mission 
there you have the other motivating factors, whether it's saving the world or just helping a local community or something. So when you have to do the sales activities of fundraising and business development, you're not going to feel, you know, some misgivings about it. And it's probably going to be a lot smoother transition for you. Absolutely. And what I have found is the best fundraisers, and this includes my business partner, Sharon, the best fundraisers are people who have experienced selling air, people who sold advertising in on radio, particularly, which is literally selling air, can understand the finding a valid business reason for someone to invest in what on some days feels like nothing or mm. what on some days feel it's not tangible. Yes, yeah. fundraising like radio ad sales, you're you're selling a, a product, but it's not tangible. We're, we're not selling sneakers or ice cream cones. So it's it's different and you need to be ready to do that. Definitely. And of course, it's different if you're doing corporate fundraising. So if you're selling sponsorships or a corporate match to your mission, it's different than the individual fundraising. And and I think understanding that as well, that it's a big field. And there are some roles at small organizations, especially where you'll get to do all of the things but there are other places, let's say higher ed, where you can really focus in in whatever niche is the one that you are very best. So Amy, I'd love to know, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Do I have a favorite failure? I don't know that I'd call it a failure. There, there's always learning in it. So there was a donor I was working with who was, he himself was new to the organization, but his parents had been very involved before. And I caught myself in our meetings talking about the things that his parents were interested in. And I needed to remind myself to listen to him more than talking. I think that is a common failure across fundraising is when people, when fundraisers do all the talking because your donors will always surprise you. So we had a long conversation about Chinese art on this occasion. And he said, yeah, that was my mother's thing. And really reminded me that he was there with his own philanthropy and his own heart for the work that we were doing. And at the end of the day, the gift we put together was much larger and in an area of interest that his parents would not have imagined supporting. Hmm. Powerful. So I think that's on a more tactical and more legal note. Another, another challenge that I had was the time that a donor wanted to name a building with a planned gift that was not substantiated and fully revocable. And I didn't make the mistake because I didn't agree to do it. The university didn't agree to do it. It was not, wasn't all me. But I think that's the kind of slippery slope where you need to have a mentor or leadership or you could quickly get under, get in over your head. 
Yeah, you can't can't count those checks before they're cash. And, and that's, of course, for me, that's the fun of planned giving, that it's all a mystery until it's not. But you could do a lot of things with planned gifts, but not name buildings. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amy, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to take the word investments uh, as broadly as you like. I would say that... On different days, I think that the investment in attending law school was either the best investment or the silliest waste of an awful lot of time and money. But today, I'll say it was a great investment. It expanded my knowledge. It expanded my abilities and and gave me the time that I think often fresh college graduates don't give themselves to think about what I was really best at and what I really wanted to do. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I didn't go until I was, what, you know, 32, 33 or so. I already had kids, had been in the army and done a variety of different things. But yeah, I wouldn't, even though I'm not, I'll never practice law, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Absolutely. I think that's it's the kind of gift. Education is a gift we give ourselves, which is why educational philanthropy is so much fun, because you're allowing people to give that gift to the students who come after them. But I digress. <laughs> that's great. But Amy, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh, I'm not. That's a bad question for me. So... I think I learned this in law school, but I read voraciously. When I get into a book, I can't be found and can't hear anyone around me and ignore my children and family for the three days that it takes me to read the whole book. But I, when I'm done, I remember none of it. I'm going to take a pass on that one I, because I, I very so much between like historical fiction or like completely frivolous nothingness. I'll, I'll pass on that. Oh, for sure. Reading so, is Amy, good. I'll just tell you, reading is good. <laughs> it is indeed. So what are some bad recommendations that you hear in your profession? You should hire them. They know a lot of people. That's a bad that's a bad piece of advice I have received and I have seen in action. I've been interviewed by people who have said, who do you know and how many of the donors from your last organization will you be able to bring here? None. That's not how it works. So there, that's bad advice. Also, the idea that you can... Hire someone who cares about your mission a lot and expect that to turn into successful fundraising without teaching them what fundraising is. And mm -hmm. that is not bad advice, but it's just a thing that happens over and over again. Oh, absolutely. Those are great. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career? I would say that it's not a great talent of mine. I think the best 
advice to find a mentor, first of all, is you have you can't be afraid to ask someone to to mentor you or to sponsor you or to work with you. And I have found that when asked, people are willing and interested in doing. The best way to find people who are interested in helping you is to be interested in the work that they do. And so always by asking questions. Couldn't agree more. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved? I'm guessing that you don't want to hear run the dishwasher before you go upstairs at night. It will be if that gets it done. That's what gets it done. Get all the way full and then empty it in the morning. And then it's all the way. You can start fresh. I, really. I, I think the, I say that jokingly, but it's true. And it mean, what it means to me is that every day gets to be a fresh start. If you put it away at night, whatever that means, literally in the dishwasher or close the computer, go to sleep. And in the morning, you get to get up early and start all over again. Whatever the mistakes were from the day before, you have another chance to cross some things off the list. Do one thing at a time, do it well, and get on to the next. No, I love that. I gave up dishwashers like a few years back because I would just get so frustrated with either having to like always wash everything afterwards again or there's like stuff on it like it was just always a pain so I was like forget it and now I find like just washing dishes to be like a very almost meditative practice but I do like to think about yeah when it's 11 p.m or something you have a sink full of dishes and it's just okay how can I like pay it forward to my future self? Like, how can I make like future Pacifico or tomorrow Pacifico happier? And it's okay, if I take 10 minutes to do the dishes now, like that's actually going to make tomorrow like a lot better in like a small way, but it is really a lot of times a small thing. So I think that's a really cool answer. Thank you, Pacifico. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) So Amy, if you could have a gigantic billboard with anything on it anywhere, what would it say and why? We're thinking. Call your mother. But well, that's a good one. That's that's that. No one that, said that yet. That would no be one. one. That. I would good. go with call your mother. Now maybe it's because my youngest child left this morning for a summer job, and when she comes back, she will go straight to college, and I will. I have lost. I'm I'm done with that as of today. Wow. But I think. Yeah, I'll stick with that. Call your mother. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear that again someday, but you're definitely the first. Amy, call what your are mother. your... What's that? If you're lucky enough to have one, call your mother. <laughs> there you go. So what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, techniques, and habits? We come back to load the dishwasher at night, but for me, I not everyone would count this as self-care, but... Take a minute to make the list of the things that need to be done and do them. Because as much as I am strategic in my work and I'm always looking for the big picture, I only get there by looking at all the tactics behind it. And so 
I'm going, I'm, I'm the one who's going to ask all the questions to help build the big answer. So for me, making that list of questions or list of tasks is very therapeutic. Otherwise, tell everyone in the house to leave and I can just sit down and get lost in one of those books that I won't remember later. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think I'm a very strategic mind as well. And I think it's like, you can get so lost in, in the vision, the futurism of it all, and or just, yeah, all the big picture stuff. And it's okay to actually execute on all this stuff. We do need the, the tactical side of it. And yeah, making a list can be a pain in the ass. But at the same time, it's and you get that satisfaction, you get those dopamine hits of okay, yeah, checking things off, and I get through everything. And then you can look back and actually have a record of everything you've done. And yeah, like you said, it is incredibly simple. And so people can undervalue it in a way, but it's powerful. So I will say Pacifico that I live for the day. And it will never come when I can say that what I do is I go for a run. I feel like that's, I, I wish I could say that. I will never go for a run. But, <laughs> but uh, we don't really know each other. So I should have just pretended. I go for a run. Here's <laughs> my head. Listen to a good podcast. Yeah, everyone's got their own thing. So it's a pretty, I get some diverse answers to, to what people do. But yeah, love it. So in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Parent-teacher obligations. I would dream say, about that. <laughs> I, yeah, just say no. It's okay. Sometimes your dollars are more helpful than your cupcakes. I, I think I have not. I got better at saying no to parent-teacher things a little while ago. And then over the last year's, I have jumped back in. I'm now in a place of saying, trying to say yes more. I think the last year and a half, we all had to say no to almost everything during COVID and, and as we were locked at home. And so now I'm actually getting some pleasure in finding reasons to say yes. I can definitely see that. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help? Or My father's sister. My, my aunt grew up with two brothers who became physicians, and she was told that sort of that wasn't her path. They were, she was the girl. And so she went about her life. And then at the age of 36 or 37, after having her children, she went back to medical school and became a neurologist, which was what she had wanted to do all along and took her undergraduate psychology degree and cranked it up a notch. So I would say that bravery from her and that interest in finding and following her own path has been inspirational to me and I hope to my daughters both in showing them and showing us all that there is no there's no time limit or rule as to when you can do what you want to do but also showing that you can decide on your own and you don't need permission to become mm -hmm. who you're meant to be what a, what a wonderful example it's amazing 
So Amy, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. And I'm sure anyone who's in the nonprofit world or thinking of getting into it will get a, get a ton of value out of this conversation. It's been fantastic. And so that brings me to my last question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, you, you, you this is your Barbara Walters minute here. Gonna try to make me cry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have been so fortunate to have kind to have found kind people wherever I have gone. I, I don't know. That's a, I need more thinking on that. Oh, that's totally all right. I definitely had a lot of people that yeah have just been very like myself very blessed to have had uh, a life full of kindness and can definitely be hard to to pick out any one individual one but i think, I, think I, I can't i can't think of any one but i have to say that all of them together that my collective response is that in raising my own children and in living my own life being kind is so high on the list. And mm. I think much higher than my own parents put it on the list they made for me. When, if you had, I don't think they had an actual list, but if you had asked my parents to make a list of the things that were important for their children, kindness would have been probably on the list, but not at the top. But for my own children, it is at the top. And I try to model kindness and to pay back the kindnesses that I have received. That's a great answer. It's an answer. Well, Amy, thank you again so much for joining me today, Amy. It's been a pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much, Pacifico. This has been a lovely, if rambling conversation and I hope there was some value in it. And I think I have, it's always fun to learn a little bit about myself, but I think next time we'll have to turn the tables and, and have you give <laughs> some of your own answers. There you go. <laughs> Interview me. So today's episode was brought to you by marketingforattorneys.com. If you're an attorney looking to grow your law firm and ditch the crowded field of pay-per-click advertising, then visit marketingforattorneys.com to book your free consultation. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, Wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.